So on Mother's Day, if you remember, uh, we went through kind of a very broad overview of biblical womanhood. We looked at seven points. Do you guys remember them? Does anyone remember one? Ladies? <laughs> I'll tell you. So there were uh, women are of equal value as men. Women are a gift of God. Women are needed by men. Women are wanted by men. Women are supported of her man. Women are disciples of women. And women are homemakers and disciples of her children. And so that was what we looked at for Mother's Day. And so today, being Father's Day, guess what we're going to do? Yep. Kind of the same thing for, for man, for manhood. We're look at another seven points of, okay, what does the Bible say about men? Uh, what does it mean to be a man? In, in seven points. And why should we listen? Well, first of all, this is God. This is our creator who is literally defining and dictating this is what it means to be a man that you're called to be. Uh, we should listen because our world, our culture, wants to destroy men, just like our flesh wants to berate anything masculine in us, and the enemy of our soul wants to crush men as well. So this morning, we'll listen to what God's Word says about being a man. And uh, three things to keep in mind. Number one, this is not comprehensive whatsoever. It's a, a broad overview, kind of uh, a, a broad plan of like, okay, these are our goals as men. And kind of what I said last week to, uh, not last week, on Mother's Day to the men, ladies, just because this is to the men, do not tune out. Uh, this is important to understand your husband, your future husband, to help those who are married uh, and helping younger women. Or if you're not married, helping other women who are married. Uh, it's important to, as you're raising your son, it's important as raising your daughter on, on what they should be looking for as a man. So it's very applicable to even those who are not men, meaning women. Uh, yes, that was funny. The third point I want to say is I say all this not because I'm perfect, nor do I think I am, nor does Casey think I am. Sawyer, on the other hand, I think he does. No, uh, the, I want to package this message in a sense of brokenness over my own failures in these, these areas, my own inadequacies. And so I hope that comes across. And that's how it's being packaged. In no way am I like, you need to do this because I do this. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to do this because God says this. And my goal today is not to bash men. That is not my goal at all. My goal is to call us all up into the amazing responsibility we have. Okay, you ready? If you have your notes, get ready. We're going to fly. Is it going to be long? Possibly. We'll see how long it takes. <laughs> There's seven points. The last two are short. So if you're like on the third point, you're like, wow, this one's long. The last two are super short, but they're very important. So here we go. What does God say about men? Just as we looked at about women, how about men? Number one, very similar to women. Men are significant. That's the first point. Men are significant. What do I mean? Men are crucial, absolutely vital to God's plan. Each man, old, young, unmarried, married, kids, without kids, each man has a massively significant and important role in their family in their church family, in their community, state, country, in the world. And I'll say that often, family, church family, community, world, because that's very true. Men have a crucial role in God's plan. And this may seem to us kind of like, yeah, well, good point. I think we all get that pretty easily. And, and that's true. And many of us do. And I say that just because in our culture, everywhere we look, I feel like it, the, that's the, not the message we hear. It says, 
we're not, you're not needed. Men are not needed. On that big jo- job or in that role or that dangerous job, men aren't needed. A woman could do that job. In fact, she could do it even better than you is kind of the message we get. Or from the government, fathers aren't really needed because the government will provide, the government will care for your kids, and they'll even educate your kids is what we hear. Uh, we see this everywhere on TV, and I'm sure you've heard this. It seems like all men are painted as either doofuses, like Homer Simpson, that are more of a liability than they are of any kind of help, or as, or as abusive and controlling. And that's how men are presented, either a complete doofus or someone who's abusive. And so the enemy of our souls does a great job in beating men down, just like they do a great job of beating women down. They beat men down as well, like he does. The culture paints men as animals to be tamed, as a violator in waiting, or as a pseudo-woman that needs to be feminized. And that's not the truth whatsoever. God created men as leaders and protectors of their families, of their church family, of their communities, and their country. It's not an overstatement whatsoever that your family, your church family, your community, your world depends on you. Not whatsoever. And God makes it very clear as we see all throughout Scripture. So you're far more important than you think you are. What you do every day, how you lead every day, it matters big time. Elizabeth Elliot, and we quoted her Mother's Day. Um, she passed away a couple of years ago. She was married to Jim Elliot, the missionary who was martyred. She says this. She says, kind of speaking to men, she says, Stand true to your calling to be a man. Real women will always be relieved and grateful when men are willing to be men. The best thing for a woman is for men to be men. The best thing for kids is for men to be men. The best thing for other men is for men to be men. And you may be listening to this and think, you know what, Alex? I don't really feel like that for him. And I, I feel like that a lot of times too. I don't feel that significant. I don't feel like I have that big of an impact on other people. Um, or even my family sometimes. J.W. Alexander, he says this. There is no member of a household whose individual piety is of such importance to all the rest as a father or head. Where the head of a family is lukewarm or worldly, he will send the chill through the whole house. What is he saying? As the father goes, so goes the household. As the men go, so goes the church. As the, community, as the men go, so goes the community, so goes the country. Now, if you're like me sometimes, you may be thinking, well... I am not a good leader. I am not like so-and-so. And I think of some really great leaders in our church. I'm like, I'm not even close to so-and-so. Despite your imperfection, despite all your inadequacies, God has given you this role in your family. He has given you this role in the church. He has given you this role in the community and in the country. So make no mistake. God cares about you. God cares about you and your role as a father, as a man, as a worker, as a church member, as a deacon, as an elder, your role in the community, and a citizen, your God cares. And so that's my first point. It seems basic, but it gets beat up, just gets beat down. The first is men are important. Men are significant. Number two, now we're going to get digging, get ready. Number two is this. Men, biblical men, biblical manhood, are Christ-like and have character. Men who seek to be biblical men, as the Bible describes, seek to be Christ-like. If I ask you, who do you think is the most masculine man in history, 
who, who would you say? Throw some things out there. The one I think of right away is John Wayne, right? Or Clint Eastwood, right? Kind of that growl, gritty, kind of, I'll beat you up if you look at me type of thing. And they can be examples of men in different ways. But in history, the most masculine man was Christ, was Jesus. And I know we know that. And I don't think this is anything new. And so this is what I want to do at this point. Please follow with me. Because if you're like me, and I'm sure, I'm sure other men are, we like goals, we like things to work towards, we like steps, we like structure, and we want to get after it. And that's what we like, right? And so sometimes we hear, yep, be Christ-like. We're like, okay, not sure really what, where do I even go from here? So I want to list out some things. Eight things, I think there are eight goals of what this looks like. It'll go quick. Please follow with me. Because this gives us what we should be looking at, what we should be developing as men. Because the overall goal is a holy character in leading for the glory of God and to the good of others. A holy character in leading for the glory of God and the good of others. Men that are Christ-like and have character. The first one is be a follower of Christ. You cannot be a good leader unless you're a good follower first. You cannot be a good leader unless you're a good follower first. And as men, we can never be the man we're called to be unless we're a Christian. Because we need God's grace, and we need his forgiveness, and we need his goodness. And we need to be submitting to Christ in repentance and faith. So number one, what it means to be Christ-like, to be a man, is we need to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. Number two is to be a student of God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16, verse 17. I'm sure many of us have that memorized or, or are familiar with it, where Paul tells Timothy... What God's word, what it's good for. At the end, he says, to equip the man of God for every good work, is what he says. Every good work. If we believe that, we need to be in God's word, because we want to be equipped for every good work, for what it means to be a man, to be a father, to be a husband. Uh, the psalmist writes in 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your, your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So I'm young, relatively. But I try to keep a long vision in a sense of being faithful. How do I stay faithful? Because we see so many. We see so many pastors, so many men that just fall apart, right? Some well-known guys that just fall apart. And so how am I supposed to be faithful? As a worker, how am I supposed to be faithful as a husband, as a father? How am I supposed to be faithful? And the psalmist tells us right here guard your way according to God's word, store up your heart with God's word, be in God's word, and let God's word be in you, store it within you. Another thing that we should be shooting for as a man of Christ being Christ like is to be obedient. Uh, Ecclesiastes, who's is that anyone's favorite book? It can be somewhat depressing if you read it, right? Because Solomon's like, hey, I just have all this money. I just let myself in it, and it was vanity. That's the, the most the theme in it, vanity, right? He said, I didn't let any pleasure away from me. I had it all. It was all vanity, he says. And then he ends with this. He says, fear God. This is Ecclesiastes 12, 13. He says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God, keep his commandments. And so we're called to be obedient. Solomon sums it all to fear God, keep his commandments. What are his commandments? The greatest and the second greatest, right? Love God, love others. What is love? That song, what is love, right? Because it's a general term. 
But it's very clear. Love is patient. It's kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I think my point in saying this is how practical it is. It's not a wishy-washy. Like, this is practical. And we, we can be shooting for this. Christ-like. A man is Christ-like. Number four, he surrounds himself with godly friends. He surrounds himself with godly friends. Psalm 1 tells all about this. Blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Proverbs is full of wisdom saying, hey, you become like your friends. You will become like your friends. And so we need to be around godly men. We may not work with godly men, but we need to be around, intentionally being around godly men. What better place to do it than a church, a different, messing around with different guys, golfing like this this last past week, uh, the Trams house, losing at bags and stuff. Number five, what does it mean to be Christ-like? Control your body and desires, meaning self-control. Uh, we often, especially young people, I'm sure older people, we ask, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will? This is what Paul writes. 1 Thessalonians 4. He says this. For this is the will of God. It's like, yeah, here we go. He says, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Self-control. And we talk about passion a lot within Christianity, right? I want to have passion for God. And we meet it in good terms. We mean it, obviously, we mean it very well. But when the Bible talks about passion, it's almost always in negative terms in the sense of the, the, the unsaved who are, are lost in their desires. They just follow the passions of their flesh. Paul says about that in, a lot in Ephesians 2. And he talks about this passion. And unlike that, Christians, godly men, control their desires. They control their urges and emotions. Number six, they flee. Christ-like men flee from the love of money. And I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but I'm giving us practical things. This is what we should be shooting for. We should flee from the love of money. Paul says this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. What are these things? The first two verses before it. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have even wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Flee from the love of money. Another thing, what does it mean to be Christ-like? We hear that, what does it mean? It means to walk by the Spirit and to produce the fruit of the Spirit, which we're experts at, right? Because we read Galatians 5 where we studied through it. Come on, Joel. Remember the list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Walking by the Spirit. We talked about that. Dependent growth. Obedience to God's Word. Uh, if you want to catch that up, you can look on, online on our, our sermon on that, our study on that. Um, last point I want to make here. Being Christ-like as men is following the example of our elders. And let me explain. Our elders are our leaders, and they're lead by example. We should follow their example. And what is their example? Paul tells us what the, the example should be in Titus and in 1 Timothy. But in Titus he says, for an overseer, an elder... 
As God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-control, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also be those to contribute to it. Let me stop there. I realize I just listed a ton of things in these eight points. Being a follower, self-control, flee for money, uh, having good friends. I realize that. And I don't mean that to overwhelm us. But just to, to lay out, what are we doing as men to, to work towards these things? Here's the goals that we have. God's very clear. This is what we should be working towards. What is our plan? What is my plan? What is your plan to work towards that? So being a man, a biblical man, is to be Christ-like and to have character. Number three, follow with me. Remember, the first rewards are the biggest ones. So please do not lose hope. Here we go. Number three is kind of an add-on to number two. Men are spiritually and doctrinally stable. Men are spiritually and doctrinally stable. In Ephesians 4... Paul kind of talks about the, the maturity of all Christians, basically. He talks about the, 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 the church. In Ephesians 4, he talks when he compares maturity with being like a full stature of man and to this doctrinal stability. Let me read it. This is Ephesians 4, 13 to 14. He says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer, so we're, we mature, so that, he tells us the purpose, we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. So we can't overlook this. This is a vital, a vital characteristic of what it means to be a man, is to have doctrinal stability. We're not tossed to and fro by different philosophies that are not biblical, by different ideas or different false doctrines. We're not tossed about. I'm going to quote somewhat extensively from this man named Phil, Phil Johnson. He writes this when it talks about character. Not just the gentle Jesus, meek and mild style character, but the full orb fruit of the Spirit rounded out with strength, courage, conviction, and stout-hearted willingness to oppose error and fight for the truth, even to the point of laying down your life for the truth if necessary. He goes on and listen to this. He goes on. I keep hearing about churches who have moved their men's fellowship to the pub where they discuss theology as a hobby and share their views on life as a Christian, men over beer and cigars. And let me point out that there's nothing particularly manly about that. It's still a private hen party, but you've just substituted beer and cigars in place of tea and crumpets. If you want a taste of what real manhood looks like, do some gospel ministry in a hostile environment. Stand up for the truth in some venue where it is under attack. Get a, a solid manly grasp on the Bible and stand up and teach its hard truths in a way that helps make the truth clear to the people who are struggling to get it. Contend earnestly for the faith when some nice-sounding heretic wants you to sit down and have a friendly dialogue about it. Be the kind of man Paul describes here, someone who is steadfast and sure with a solid grasp of biblical truths that have gone out of vogue. Stand against popular opinion, as you know you should, and do it every time the opportunity arises. What is this point he's saying? True masculinity, as we see here, part of it is being doctrinally stable and calling out error. Uh, Martin Luther, we've talked about, I, I've referenced him a lot. Him or one of his followers, uh, I'm not really sure where the quote comes from, but listen to this. He says this. If I profess with the loudest voice 
and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldiers proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. And what's the point? Is that he's saying, men, we are called to the battle. In that quote, he's saying, hey, we may be faithful here, but if we're not faithful at the point that the world and the enemy is actually attacking, then we are just, we're not being men. We're actually fleeing from it. My point in saying all this is simply men, mature biblical men, are doctrinally stable. They're spiritually stable. Have you heard of J.C. Ryle? Uh, somewhat well-known guy from the 1800s. I quote a lot of old people because they're really smart. <laughs> if you're old, you're probably very wise. I can learn a lot from you. He's from the 1800s, from Britain. He talks about uh, a jellyfish Christianity. And please listen as I quote this. I know I'm quoting a lot of people, but listen to this. A jellyfish Christianity. He says this. Uh, dislike of dogma or, or an extending on these propositions is an epidemic which is now just doing harm, and especially among young people. It produces what I must venture to call a jellyfish Christianity, a Christianity without bone or muscle or power. Alas, is it a type of much of the religion of this day in which the leading principle is no dogma, no distinct tenets, no positive doctrine. He goes on. We have hundreds of jellyfish clergymen who seem, out, who seem not to have a single bone in their body of divinity. They have no definite opinions. They are so afraid of extreme views that they have no views at all. We have thousands of jellyfish sermons preached every year, sermons without an edge or point or corner, smooth as billiard balls, awakening no sinner and edifying no saint. And worst of all, we have myriads of jellyfish worshipers, respectable church-going people who have no distinct and definite views about any point in theology. They cannot discern things that differ any more than colorblind people can distinguish colors. They are tossed to and fro like children to every wind of doctrine, ever ready for new things because they have no firm grasp on the old. Men are doctrinally stable. It's over and over, all through Scripture. The elders, the, what were our examples supposed to be, are doctrinally sound. They need to know God's word, be able to teach it, and to be able to defend it. We can't give up truth to be liked by the culture, to be loving, in the sense of how they define it. Being tolerant of sin, no absolutes, no authority, no exclusive truth statements. Like Christ is Lord, God created man and woman. Homosexuality is wrong and evil. Pornography is wrong and evil. Men are called to be doctrinally stable. It's not easy. It's very easy to compromise and just go with the flow. But we're called as men to stand up. And it's the role of the elders to equip us to do that. That's number three. Number four, we're halfway there. So a biblical man is a follower of Christ. A biblical man is Christ-like and has character. A biblical man is doctrinally sound. Number four, men are leaders. Men are leaders. Biblical manhood and masculinity can boil down to three words. Leadership, authority, and action. Leadership, authority, and action. Number one, I'm going to hit these very quick. Leadership. Ephesians 5, which Max read for us, or, or, or I'm sorry, a different point, which we read in Mother's Day, says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything to their husbands. Wives submit because the man is the head or the leader. And men, we take that role very seriously, and we, or we ought to, and we ought to grow in that. We're leaders in our households. First Timothy 2, within the church context, we saw that in Mother's Day as well. Paul writes, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was, was deceived and became a transgressor. What's the point? We see men as leaders in the family and in the church family. Men are leaders. Uh, who's a big fan of World War II, or the history, I should say? Reading history books? Uh, General George Patton, right? He was kind of uh, in the Mediterranean that uh, he was working, at least his group. He says, duty is the essence of manhood. Duty is the essence of manhood. Being men, we gladly assume the responsibilities that God has given us as leaders. Men reject, reject passivity and accept responsibility. That's leadership. Number two is authority. Uh, in any job, if you give someone responsibility, but don't give them the authority to accomplish the, the, the responsibility, you're just setting them to fail, right? Responsibility comes of the authority, which we kind of talk about with the leadership, that men have authority in their, in their homes, in the, the church family as well. Um, do not abdicate this authority. Do not sidestep them. If, let me give an example. If you're in a marriage and your wife is the real authority, like we say, she, we're one that wears the pants in the, in the relationship, whether making decisions, money, time, kids, whatever. On the day we stand before God as men, we will be the ones held responsible for all the household work. We may try to excuse, like, well, she was the one that was really making the decision, so it's really her fault. Nope. Nope. It was our responsibility as men. We're the leaders. Do not abdicate this authority. Uh, with that, don't ask for permission. What I mean by that is don't ask for permission what authority you already have. Do not look for permission from our culture, from the president, from the most recent best-selling Christian book. Don't look for permission. Leave. Lead in your household, in your churches. Authority. Um, what men can watch movies like Gladiator, or Braveheart, or uh, American Sniper and not want to go and run through a wall because you're just so hyped up, right? You're just ready to take down an animal or something. God has created us for action. And that's not bad. And it's not, it should not be extinguished, but it should be redirected. It should be redirected to protecting, to providing, to, for, for real justice, for the unborn, for being murdered. We need to redirect it. Uh, who has read, or I assume heard of, uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia books? Okay, now we got some hands. There we go. In it, uh, so for those who haven't um, read it, there's a line Aslan. Am I pronouncing it right? Yeah, I think so, Aslan. He, he symbolizes or kind of is the picture of Christ. And in it, one of the, the Susan, one of the kind of the kids, the younger ladies in there, she asks, she says, well, is he safe? Like, he's a lion, is he safe? And the person responds and says, he kind of laughs, like, of course he's not safe. But then they say, but he is good. 
He's not safe, but he is good. And that's exactly with men. Men are supposed to be safe. I can use that. Men are supposed to be good. Or supposed to be Christ-like. We need to redirect this the drive we have because it's not bad. Let me make one more side point here. Uh, for the Spirit, we may read it. We might read gentleness. If we read it, I initially, when I read it, I think, okay, wow, this is quite the feminine quality, at least from the surface. But it's not. Jesus was gentle. And Jesus, he could literally speak and he could uh, slaughter his enemies, which he, in fact, will do in Revelation. You see that there. My point is saying is that gentleness is strength under control. Strength under control. Jesus is the most manly man there was. And he was gentle. He was strong. And he had incredible. He, he was very dangerous. But he was under control. He was good. Moving on. Follow of Christ. Christ-like. Doctrinally stable. Men are leaders. Number five. Men have a mission. This is what uh, Max read. God created men with a mission. At the very beginning, we see this, Genesis 1. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the flesh of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, uh, one that follows up, I didn't have Max read, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. He says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This mission of being uh, multiplying, being fruitful, subduing heaven dominion, and working. In other words, using your gifts and abilities to order your world in a way that extends God's name. Using your gifts and abilities to order your world to extend God's name. Meaning glorifying God through your work. Your work glorifies God. Uh, AJ just read that. And Paul, I think he says it very similar to 1 Corinthians. And all you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. In everything, we can glorify God. So consider your mission, your, your job. What are you about? What are you about? How are you using your gifts to extend God's name? And you can do that in any job. But are you doing that? What is your mission? What are you about? Listen to this, the Great Commission. Listen to the similarity here with Genesis Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Very similar to Genesis 1. Multiply. Jesus says, Make disciples. So we're supposed to have a mission in our work. Let me focus in on this point here, please. Is our focus on our mission in the household. So part of the mission of men is that we're supposed to disciple our wives, to love and disciple our wives. Exactly what Max read earlier. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. We're called to love our wives, and it's in a picture of the gospel when we're doing it right. The only relationship, marriage, that's a picture of the gospel. Christ's love for his bride, the church. Vody uh, Bakum, he summarizes a man's responsibility to his wife in four words, four Ps. Provider, protector, priest, prophet. Provider is pretty obvious, right? You're providing physically for your wife. 
Protector that also somewhat obvious. You're protecting your wife physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. The priest prophet, what he means by this, is the priest, if you remember the Old Testament, was uh, who did these sacrifices that kind of stood in between the people and the God. And what he meant by that is praying for your wife. Praying for your wife, but also prophet. And the prophet, if you remember the Old Testament, they spoke God's word to the people. In the same way, the man is to teach and to speak God's word to his wife, to disciple his wife. And so we're called to this. We're called to, to love our wives as Christ loved the church and to disciple them. The second part of our mission is to disciple our kids. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Which is no doubt tied to what Max read in Deuteronomy 6 when it talks about... Um, Teaching your children as you talk, as you sit, as you walk, as you lie down, when you rise. In other words, all the time, be teaching your kids. Psalm 78. I don't know if you remember, but I, I, I read from that at Adeline's dedication. Do you remember that, Max? Can you quote that, what I read? <laughs> Psalm 78 talks about how the father's responsibility to teach the next generation. Judges. Who's read that book a lot? It is probably the most awful stuff that happens in the Bible happens in Judges. And if you know how it starts, Judges 2, it talks about how the generation didn't follow, the, the, like the men, one generation didn't follow God, and their children didn't even know who God was. And we see the, the devastating results. If we do not bring our children up in the discipline of the Lord, next generation will not know God. And it will be horrible. Exactly how it says in Judges. And so I want to be practical. What does this look like? You might have heard me say, whether on Facebook or here, uh, the, an idea of family worship. And that's what Casey and I do. Um, and you don't have to do it. You figure out whatever works for your family and do it. But what that looks like for us. I mean, Sawyer, he doesn't even know what's going on yet, really. He just knows that. I, I hope he knows I'm dead. But what we do, 15 minutes every day, we put on a worship song uh, on YouTube, whatever that is. And we'll sing it. And then we will go through a Bible passage. We'll read it for another five Minutes and then obviously when he gets older we're going to want to talk about it but since he he just kind of sits there and picks his nose we haven't really got to that point and then we pray together and we do that and we try to each day probably we're probably successful five out of seven days a week but we're trying to be very intentional because Sawyer by God's grace is going to be brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord do I feel adequate to do that not even close. But it's going to happen because we're called to do it as men. Don't have to do that, but find a way that works for you and do it. So, men, you are responsible for the evangelism and the discipleship of your wife and kids. And as a church, we're not going to do it for you. But we will, in every single way we can, equip you to do it. And everyone will come. If you're like, well, how am I supposed to do that? Come, talk to me, one of the elders. We're not going to do it for you, but we will do everything we can to support you in fulfilling that for yourself and your family. Let me finish this point up. Men with mission. If you remember on Mother's Day, uh, a woman, they had their role um, uh, submitting when we talked about that. 
But sin, the curse of sin, made that hard. Even given birth, the curse of sin was pain and childbearing. And then also to have your desire was for your husband, which we saw connected with Cain and Abel. I know I'm talking fast, but I'm hoping that we remember this, is that this, this wanted to control them. And the same way men have a curse from sin as well when it comes to our mission to our work. If remember, God talks about that we will work, we'll work the ground, but it'll be in pain, it'll be in sweat, and it'll be thorns and thistles, is what God says. There'll be pain, sweat, thorns, and thistles while you go about this mission. What does that mean? Nothing we'll do will be easy. It will not be easy at all. And it, some of you are like, yep, that's, that's definitely the truth. It's not easy what's been. Nothing will be easy. Leading your family will not be easy. Working possibly many days will not be easy. What else does it mean? You'll do a lot and not much will come from it. You'll toil a lot and not much will happen. What you do will eventually turn to dust. Uh, if I could point, Darren, uh, like work uh, house projects or anyone else working on their house. You get one thing done and the thing you just worked on five years ago, it needs to be fixed, right? You get done, go to the next, go to the next, and then the thing you fix, like, okay, I have to go back and retain it. It drives you insane, or it drives me insane. This maintenance, everything needs to be maintained. You're never done. The curse, you'll be toiling, there'll be thorns, there'll be thistles. And we get this in our, in our, our work and our mission. It'll be hard. It's because of sin that's doing this. We'll have the struggle. We'll have a tendency, men, we'll have a tendency to be passive and indifferent and lazy. We see this when Eve was talking to the serpent and took the apple. Adam was right there. He did nothing. He was passive. He was indifferent. And he was lazy. He did nothing. We, men, had the same tendency. I know I do. I had the same tendency. But we have that because of sin. So let me finish, that's the finishing that point. We're called to mission. It'll be difficult because of sin, but we're still called to mission in our work, in our hustle. Last two points, super quick. Number six, men need other men. Men need other men. All these qualities we're talking about sound really good, and it can't just come from uh, someone teaching, but it comes from discipleship. It comes from a trust. It comes from accountability. Manhood requires men. Masculinity is taught and caught. It is not automatic. Masculinity and being man is taught and caught. It is not automatic. Women are reminded of their femininity every month. Every month they're reminded of their femininity. We don't have that. Men do not have some automatic affirmation about their manhood. They need other men to affirm it. Uh, one guy says this, you achieve manhood by participating in the manhood of others, by experiencing and internalizing it. Masculinity is learned by imitation, and that's where we come in. We might not have had perfect fathers. None of us have had perfect fathers. Some have been really good fathers with really good intentions. Some have had horrible fathers. But that's where men in the church come in. Married, unmarried, old, young, doesn't matter. We can help each other. We can pour into each other. Uh, Proverbs 22, I think it is, or 27. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Number seven, to finishing this up here. So we talked about the responsibilities of men, their character, follow Christ, to be leaders, fulfill their mission in their work and in their household, to disciple their wife and kids, to build each other up. The last point is men persevere. Men persevere. It won't be easy. The curse of sin has told us that it will not be easy. The flesh will be against us. The world will be against us. The enemy of our soul will be against us. But men persevere. 
Paul, on his, almost on his deathbed, I shouldn't say that, but he was very close to the end of his life. He told Timothy, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Men don't quit. They don't quit. They stumble, but they don't quit. So let me tie this up to conclude. So these seven points. A brief overview of being a, a biblical man, uh, the man that God has created us to be. One, men are significant. Two, men are Christ-like and have character. Three, men are spiritually and doctrinally stable. Four, men are leaders. Five, men have a mission. Six, men need other men. And seven, men persevere. They do not quit. I said a lot, and I understand that, and I want to be sensitive to that. I said a lot, a lot of things, and it's overwhelming. I get that. But let's work towards it. Re-listen to this. Uh, go through the passages I brought up. Let's work towards this. If you're not trusting in Christ alone, right now for your salvation, you will never be the man you're called to be. You will never be. What is your personal growth or your personal plan for character? To grow in character. What is your personal plan? A few questions as I try to tie this together here. What are your goals and your plan in studying God's word and theology and doctrine? What is your plan? What are you doing? What could you do better? What is your plan in discipling your wife and kids? What structure will you take? What material, what will you use, God's word or some other kind of resource? What is your mission at your work, in your household? Write it down. Share it with your family. What does your friend group look like? Who do you spend the most time with in terms of friends? How is your involvement in your church family? How have you been connected? How have you been investing in other people's lives in our church? What steps do you need to take or things you need to stop in order to persevere over the long term? So as we tie this up, both Mother's Day and Father's Day, as men, as we grow in our role as men and express our masculinity, it encourages women to be women, encourage their femininity in exactly the opposite way. Women, when they grow in their role as women, express their femininity, they encourage men to be men, encourage their masculinity. So let me end with this. The encouragement that David, King David, told Solomon before he died, the encouragement that God told Joshua before he went into the promised land to battle against the people there, the, people, the, the encouragement that Moses told the Israelites before they went in, in battle, and the encouragement that the angel gave Daniel when he was overwhelmed with the visions. This is what they said. They said, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, act like men. Be strong, stand firm in the faith, and act like men. And God is with you. So let me pray. We'll close with prayer as I went a little longer. Um, Father, God, I pray for all men here, those listening. Lord, God, I'm overwhelmed. Looking at this list and things we do, I'm very aware of my failures. I'm sure other guys are too. Lord, give us grace. Lord, help us, God. Help us. Help us to be what we're called to be. Help us to be leaders in our families. Lord, help our kids. God, give us grace. Give us wisdom 
and how to lead our kids. Lord, we want our kids to, to follow you. God, help our wives as they encourage us and they're our helpers, Lord. Give them patience with us. Give them grace. Um, Lord, help us, God. Help us as men. Um, we see how we're needed. Lord, help us. I don't know what else to say. Help us, God. Father, as we go out today, may we hear all these things and be challenged but not discouraged not to feel condemned or guilty because Christ has paid it all. And because of Christ, every time I fail, every time we fail, we can run to the cross. We can be forgiven. And that you can pick us back up and to get after it. Remind us, Lord, that even despite our imperfection and our inadequacies, you have given us this role for the sake of our wives, our kids, our church family, our community, and our country. Lord, empower us. Lord, pour courage in us. Help us, Lord. And God, we plead this in Christ's name. Amen.